0: What are we drinking?
1: I have, uh, truthfully, I have no idea. My uh, former roommate Justin, we were in uh, college together, and he's lived in Japan for like darn near close. I want to say like the past eight years, and so he's always, you know, was sending me stuff. And he's back now. He's in this master's fellowship, and he's like, oh, they're like adult juice boxes. It's like you know, slightly sweetened sweetened sake, and you know, people just drink them in juice box. And Japan has really like open-minded open container rules so you can mm-hmm. just like rock out with a couple of these on like the subway pre-game the bar and i'm like that is just brilliant
0: they're pretty uh they're pretty tight yeah. some tough stuff in there true story all right i'm gonna talk about i'm gonna talk to you about you cool you've been performing in one way or another your whole life and you started you started pretty young very young yeah um so what inspired you as
1: a kid um, really, nothing did. Um, I was strictly... Well, not strictly is not the right word. Uh, it came about as a result, like, I think my mother just identifying my already histrionic personality and just, you know, precocious nature. And, you know, it's the standard trope of all white people. You know, my child is gifted. And so, you know, they just thought that like you know, we need to get him in an environment where he can like, you know, be this crazy little ball of energy to some sort of effect that could possibly net him. Accolades, furthering existence, et cetera.
0: So, you were an active kid, and that was mainly just a redirection, trying to get that energy to go somewhere.
1: Yeah, I wasn't like hyperactive to the point where it was like problematic or anything like that, but they just could kind of like see the writing on the wall, you know. I like to like hear stories, reenact cartoons, very imaginative. So, um, we were attending, golly, a church in a Lakeview Church of God, like way out in like past Parma, Parma Heights, somewhere out there, like Pleasant Valley area. Mm -hmm. And um, they were really big on these, like, seasonal, like, plays and stuff. And my mom, you know, it was kind of just like, man, like, you're in Sunday school, everybody, you know, is part of this. It's, like, for the big Christmas Eve service. And I got, like, the lead role, which... Even, like, as a kid, I kind of, like, understood, like, wow, this is a lot to bite off. I kind of just hoped I'd be standing in the chorus with a fun costume. Sure, sure. Yeah, who doesn't love a fun costume? But uh, I got that, and even as a kid, I really, I really liked it. It was a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun, you know, being in the play, doing all that stuff, and, uh, yeah, from then on, it just, like, then I kind of started seeking it out. You know, I wanted to, like, be in, like, choirs and stuff. I wanted to... Be in more plays, be more active in that component of that, and mostly for that point, mom and dad were pretty churchy, so like a lot of that was just you know church related. Sure. When I was you know in single digit age.
0: So it seems like the participation provided the jumping off point, and then you got into it. Is that the same thing that inspires you now?
1: Um, not really. I like I said at this point, I was kind of just I've always been moth to the flame for it. I've you know it was very wheel and woe and. I've always got the criticism, why didn't I pursue it more in college? And, you know, sometimes I do think about that. Why didn't I pursue more singing angles, vocal performance, or the very least dramatic performance? My mentality was, though, it just, like, over... I'd say darn near half the kids I knew who were in the theater programs there, they're just they're not doing anything that's related to theater and those just seem like crummy odds to me to not get, you know, paper that could be applicable to something.
0: Yeah, I understand. I understand there's a lot of there's a lot of people that we both know that I went a different way and I have yeah. a job but I get to make a lot of art still. Yeah. Happily and we might know people who maybe have to or have the, you know, they're broken up with it now.
1: Yeah, done. Oh, exactly. And, you know, many people, you know, you kind of fall out of love with it. And that, that's kind of it happens to me a lot. Like in college, I kind of just like when I got there, it's like I already feel felt like, you know, I'd gotten to the point where I'd done so many plays and really like had excelled in it. If I wasn't going to be like a Broadway baby or head to Chi-Town or something like that, then there was no point in going that. And I was very much... You know, sometimes regrettably, you know, didn't go forward with it. But as I said, I just, I didn't see, it seemed like one of those things where it was very all or nothing. Like if you put those kind of stakes out with like a major and to go into student debt for, you know, I'd want something that's a little more of a sure thing with a career path.
0: I understand. When, when you were more active in it, what's your favorite role that you
1: played? Oh, wow. Um, probably... When I was in high school, my one of my bolder uh, directors, he did an adaptation of Tennessee Williams, kind of like a little more of a controversial play uh, called Not About Nightingales. It's one of his more underrated ones. It's all about life in a prison. And for a high school play, it's like even reading it today, I'm like, this is a little dark. Like I was... Like even then, like you know, I mean, I was a worldly kid at that point, you know, sneaking into movies, seeing yeah. all kinds of art house films. So like, I read the script for it, and I was like, "This is pretty like." Is even pushing your buttons a yeah, little? Yeah, I bit. was. A little, I was just, I was impressed. You know? Do you just, think you could pull it off today, considering how really sensitive everybody is now? I do not. I do. I strongly believe it would never fly. No, I think part of it was is John, as a director, was so effortlessly good seems like a weird word to say because he did put so much effort but it was like he had an ability to just like analyze you know everything happening on the stage as just you know gears in a clock and he could see exactly how everything should be turning you know what was not in time, what needed to be fixed he was very good at giving notes and you know just like moving it along and just really really talented individual and he found he, he just pulled talent out of people too who I just I'd like, you know, I'd see them make the cast list. And I was like, how did this yokel fucking get up here? Oh, my God. But then, like, these amazing performances came out. And I'm like, face palm to the head. And it's like, he did that. Yeah, because like, what this a director kid, and a leader is. Oh, yeah, exactly. And it impressed the heck out of me. But I was at the, in the play, you know, I was the prison warden. And a lot of people, you know, everyone likes the hero. And I did initially want to be the protagonist in the play because it was a good role. And you always want the lead but I just got so much into playing the villain. A villain is a character that you can put... It requires half of what it takes to be a really good protagonist. And you could, like, even the most little bits of yourself you put in there have just exponential payoffs with a villain. And it's just, like, it's fun. You can toy with it more. Um, You can kind of, like, break it out of certain, like, villainy molds, too. Whereas a protagonist, you kind of need to, like... You need to kind of keep it within the lines, not have shades of gray, because you're what's driving, like, I mean, in the grand Greek chorus sense of it, the moral line, right, of where the story. Yeah, you're the warm and fuzzies
0: of the whole thing. Yeah,
1: and even in like this, with like this play, like a lot of shades of gray, you know, still this guy was just kind of like, to a lesser extent, a Birdman of Alcatraz kind of character, and just a good altruistic person. But, you know, you you had to toe that line. And for me, it was just like, I initially was very disappointed that I didn't get the lead because, again, you know, what ego doesn't want the lead? Sure. But uh, with him, you know, he did a great job as it. And I just, I really got to, like, push a new area of, you know, my acting craft.
0: Is that also the project that you're most proud of taking part in? In the, you know, from a drama standpoint?
1: Um... From the standard uh, theater background, I would say that's probably my most prideful, like, dramatic standard theater. But uh, I was actually in a play, a studio project for a friend of mine, and he's a really, really gifted playwright, and I had such a great time performing in it. It was uh, just called Deus Ex. It was kind of just like a a play making a religious farce kind of thing, and I just had a very good time being in that. But as, like, a straight, like, you know, just doing a straight play, like that would, I I would say, yeah, that's probably the one I am the most proud of.
0: You graduated from OU in
1: 2005. OU, oh yeah. Did you have a band in college? I didn't have a band. I took part in other people's bands. It was kind of like, I was in a weird spot, because at that point I was with like, kind of like a a sketch comedy, stand-up comedy troupe, and I was really, really into that. I was having a lot of fun. Uh, being in sketches, writing sketches, and I really—I I had a blast doing that. So I would only ever do like people's like pickup bands. It's like, hey, can you like just show up and sing these MXPX covers? And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah. Do you find that being a singer who can
0: actually sing—you have a very nice voice. Thank you. Is like that probably gets you in a lot of doors with you. There's, I, I imagine it's like a drummer. And a singer. Everybody plays guitar, and guitar players that aren't very good play bass unless you're a really good bass player, which I yeah, understand. true story. But if, you know, bands are always looking for somebody who could
1: actually sing. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I've always felt, like, in my experience in playing around with bands in high school and college, like, I, I totally agree with you on guitarists. There's so many people that pick up the ax, and, like, and styles, skill ability are, are so high in variance, you know, it's, it's very unique to see what you can get in there, but that it's true. It's a very wide field because so many right. people do it. Whereas I've always, me personally, it's like rhythm. Like if you get a good rhythm section, that's what, that's what freaking sells. Like good drummers, very hard to find a good bass player. I would say that's even harder. hmm because for whatever reason, and I mean, I don't know if it's maybe just geographically, I'm feeling it more in Cleveland, but like, there are not a lot of bass players out here with like, really good high skill Right. There's, there's a
0: handful that I could But think they're already of.
1: spoken. For, I, I mean, I mean that in the sense of like, that are like, wandering around. Like, there are great bass players and great right. acts. But like, if you needed to find one, it would be more difficult.
0: Right. And, and to your point, there's a handful of people that I know who really devoted themselves to the craft of playing bass. Yeah. And aren't just really good guitar players who have a strong knowledge of theory and can, you know, you can do Follow an adequate rhythm. job playing bass guitar as a guitar player who's, yeah. who's faking it, but we've all seen true bass players. And yes, very much so. Yeah. Uh, so following graduation, you joined the Marines. Tell me about that decision.
1: Yeah. No, it was, um, it was right before, like, you know, the Iraq War had gotten kicked off in earnest and it was right about then, like, we started seeing the cracks and, like, you know, the financial, like, financial sector and stuff started, like, you know, coming apart and yeah. currency was getting devalued. The jobs just were not there like they used to be. And... It was like, it really was a rough spot because like that was my job in high school and I worked there like every break in college and OU used to have, we were on quarters, so we had that epic winter break. So I'd work there and I'd do this ground keep, groundskeeping job in the summer, doing like groundskeeping during the day, working like, you know, four hours at JCPenney's at night and then do it all over again. And it was just like, oh man, for the birds. And then in winter I'd be like, doing almost, like, 35 because Penny's always wanted to keep you away from the 40-hour mark in case they needed to call you in to cover someone's shit. Pay overtime or anything like that. exactly. Or God help them give you benefits. Mm -hmm. So it was just, like, going back there after college was, like, it was pretty much a low at that point, and there was just, like, there was nothing I could do. I was, like, throwing spaghetti at the wall trying to, like, find something that would... You know, possibly further me along just in terms of like, I need to get out of my parents' house. You know, I've spent the last four years living on my own, suddenly to have to be going back with dear old mom and dad. That was definitely not the funnest right. at all. There's that ego word again. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> and uh no, I was uh looking into military options because I thought too and it's in the book Lies My Recruiter told me, they're like, Oh yeah, well, you know you'll get a debt waiver after your first year in service and i was like sold because i was like at that point i graduated with very minimal debt because i did like i had some good scholarships and i you know because i was like a freaking workhorse all summer long i could usually excuse me net around 4 or 5k and just pay for that first quarter like outright out of pocket and right. then i would only need to like take out a loan for like the other two that year And uh, so I only was about 17k in debt. So it's like basically just like a nicer car that I don't respectable. Yeah, yeah, not bad. And uh, not stepping on your own throat when you get that diploma. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's and it's crazy too. I have so many friends who are just like went for like grad school and stuff, and it's like 60, 70. I'm like, that's a pretty decent house you're not living in. Yeah. But yeah, I got out of there, and I was just like. I needed to minimize this debt because, like, with, you know, paying my own responsibility, things like covering my phone bill, car insurance, gas, and paying off my student loan, I had, like, no – there was never any, like, serious advancement in, like, my finances. And, I like, even just as young as I was, I'm like, if I keep in this cycle, I'm just done. So then I was like, well, if I can at least get my student loans out of it, make some money and stuff – you know, in the Marines, why not? We'll give it a try. So yeah, joined up, stepped on the yellow footprints, and uh, did the whole Paris Island uh, extreme vacation. So there's other, I
0: mean, there's other branches, and people get mad at me, but there's easier
1: rows to hoe. What made you go with the Marines? I think it was just because of that, in some weird way. Um, So many people are comfortable in their existence to just keep going along. You never do anything to really upset, even like to upset your own destiny and apple cart. You know, I think if I were a different me, perhaps I would have just plotted along, you know, maybe signed up for a temp agency trying to like get a job like being an office assistant or, you know, ordering pens and pencils. But I just, I'd kind of reached this point in my own character development that I was really looking to like, Put out my fires with gasoline to throw a David Bowieism out there. there you go. If I couldn't, you know, if you know, change would not occur, you know, naturally in my life and the trajectory that I was going on. Then I needed to be my own catalyst at that point. And then I just felt too. I could, you know, as you say, you know, I have totally have veterans for all the other branches, and uh, you know, we all gently smack talk each other sure. I, I think I did want to do the most difficult right off the rip maybe to prove something for myself because I never really you know I've had scuffles fights did a little bit of fun MMA stuff in college but I was just like maybe I'll try being a badass it makes
0: perfect sense and to some people it might not but I get it yeah I get it you're in Paris Island is there a time during that 12 weeks where you're like I no, I should have I should have gone the other way or what am I doing here
1: the first night we were allowed to sleep which was 3 days after we'd gotten there so you get off the bus you step on the uh, the, step yellow on the yellow footprints there's foot these prints. things they do this thing it's it's pretty wild like it's to the marine corps credit i've really i've looked at how the other branches do the boot camp thing and it, ours is exceptionally unique because it's like you're in the van, like the windows are blacked out and stuff the guy's in there he's like, don't talk, you know put your heads down you know don't look up, don't talk to me unless it's a matter of life or death. you get there, you finally arrive he's like, all right, get out and get out there and some guys yelling like, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out, get out and like everyone stand on these yellow footprints and you know you see them they're just like these little you know 45 position of attention hmm. yellow footprints and like now look up. And he's just like, this is the time that you'll set. Like Your career as a Marine begins now. And he's like, you're going to walk through that door. And there's this massive like metal door that looks like it's something out of a fantasy or science fiction movie with this massive eagle globe and anchor on it. They said, this is the only time you will ever walk through this door. And there's a bit of pageantry about it, too. It's like, you're going to walk through this door as civilians. He's like, when you leave, you'll leave it as a Marine. And that's when I kind of knew. I was just like, well, I'm in it now. And for three days, you're filling out paperwork. You're going to medical things and all this other stuff. And it's nonstop. They just don't let you sleep either. You're just like, you keep going. And I feel that's like your kind of like first trial. life. It's trying to just stay awake to do all this admin nonsense. Right. And the third day, we were allowed to sleep. And it's like eight hours, but my body's like, I could do 14. And that first night climbing into the rack, I was like, this was possibly a wild card decision. It wasn't a mistake at that point, but I was like, I'm definitely going to like reap what I sow on this one. And after that, like once we got into actual way, Hmm? in what way, um,
0: I guess, I I guess I can't tell right now if that has a positive connotation. Like at the end of that 72 hours, when you lay down, you're like, this is going to pay off. Like, is that what your mind is? You have an optimism?
1: Well, I kind of looked at it this, um, if you look at Virgil in the Aeneid, he puts out a quote: uh, "Each warrior with his blaze uh, can toil, chance, and glory." Something to that effect. I was just kind of like, "This will either be, you know, something that, that like where I will emerge far stronger, wiser, and greater from, or I will fail abjectly. There will be no middle ground Penguin, because there is no middle ground." Penguin Press
0: is going to be like, "Whoa, we have to print like." 10 more copies of The Aeneid because yeah
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of The need it's too. wonderful me too um, but uh, yeah and I just I kind of knew, and when I said reap what I sow it's gonna be one. I just knew it was going to be I'll return home in abject shame because I got kicked out dropped from training whatever it happens a lot I saw a lot it happened to a lot of guys you know you get injured you know there was a guy standing next to me and gosh we'd only been here like two weeks and like It's pretty gross because it's just, like, one of those, like, old school, if you remember the municipal stadium, like, those giant piss troughs. yeah. Yeah. And there's this kid, and it's just, like, you know, no one's trying to, like, make eye contact with anyone in those situations. You're just, like, do your thing. Get out of there. And the kid's kind of, like, got this, like, screwed up look on his face. It's kind of (laughs) like... And, like, you know, he's, like, the one arm is, like, shaking, and I look, and he's got popped open a Gillette Mach 3 razor blade and he's going to town on his fucking wrist and I was just like whoa like I like I didn't even know like how to like process that like I didn't even know to like call someone was like holy shit and then the other kid looks over he's like he called the guide the guide luckily like just grabbed his arm yanked him away dragged him into the drill instructor spot and like he got like psych-sepped like that night like he was back in his civilian clothes and they were putting him on a plane back home. Is
0: that what psych sept means? What does what that
1: say? Well, it's, it's like medical sept, but mm-hmm. like, you know, for me it's like you were sept because of psychological reasons. Separated. Sept, okay. Yeah. That's what I didn't, that's what I didn't understand. Because there's like medical release, which is like, you came in, like, <laughs> there's this kid in my first platoon. Came in, he tells our platoon guide, he's like, hey, my piss is green. And he's like, what? He's like, Literally, my piss is green. I don't know if it's something I'm eating or I'm sick or something, but I needed to tell someone because it's green and it hurts. And is this after you guys had been physical
0: for a while or is this still in the earlier stages? This is
1: still in the earlier stages. We're kind of like doing forming stuff. Um, Turns out, like he's thrown a medical for the day. We're, of course, you know, out doing like PT stuff, all that crap. And um, turns out his sister's, like, friend, like, offered him, like, a freebie before he left, and he totally raw-dogged it. And then like, you've got gonorrhea. Bad gonorrhea. Wow. So it was like, they had to, like, give him, like, stuff to do it, and then it was just, like, shuffle him out the door. Thanks for the parting gift. Oh, yeah. And then when we finally, like, I finally got into my platoon and everything, this was after... Gosh, what was it? We, uh... It was like after we'd finally formed, they have this big ceremony with our drill instructors introducing themselves and all that. And we were like drawing our weapons uh, from the armory. And I remember walking by to get, you know, my weapon and everything. And he's like out there like because with medical release... In, in that regard, when it's not like as extreme, you're still kind of stuck there for a couple weeks because it's like, you're still like, you belong to the Marine Corps. So it's like, they're not going to like throw you on the first flight home. They're going to wait till they can find you on a cheap flight. And then they'll just pack a bunch of you out. So like, and he was like stuck there for like three or four weeks. Cause I kind of like, you know, we're in line and he and these guys are like pulling weeds. I'm like, dude, aren't you, weren't you supposed to be gone like weeks ago? And he's like, yeah. He's like, but they're waiting until we five flights. He's like, this is like the worst. He's like, I can't wait to get home, but like, this is like absolute horrors right that now. That is pretty brutal. It's yeah, like you know that you already, you know, failed in a, yeah. in a sense. Well, y- y- in exactly. Sense. Uh, he did, and even before that, he was just like, he was total garbage. I pulled fire watch with him once, and he was just like, really, you know, it's a two hour watch detail. No one wants to pull fire watch. Everyone wants to get a full night's sleep. Right. I mean, who doesn't? But like. We're standing there, and I'm just kind of like, I know at this point, I'm 23 years old. I know how, like, head games work. You just have to keep going along. You keep following what is told to you, and it'll be over eventually. And we're on Firewatch, and he's like, I can't do this. I need sleep, dude. I'm going to sleep. And I'm like, you can't. We're on watch. You know. Then it's like if the duty NCO or duty CO, God forbid, comes through, it's like, where's the other Firewatch? He's in the rack. And they'll be like consequences for both of us and I right. just remember being livid at him so it's like when I saw him doing that I was just like oh, karma is a motherfucker
0: right and it's not like you need another responsibility of convincing this guy you know oh, yeah. you, you're, you're that you're there to, you're convincing yourself to get through the fire
1: watch and make it to the next thing. And you don't have to worry about this guy. Well, yeah, and that's like, in principle, it's like that is the chaff that needs to be separated from the wheat. I mean, you can't have a person who's going to, like, shirk at a duty that could potentially mean, you know, harm to yourself. I mean, it all comes down to, you know, the basic battle training, and it's, you know, we we tout that greatly. But, I mean, that is. I mean, it's the crux of the matter in that if you fail... In this one duty, what other duties that are far more pressing and, you know, that carry heavier consequences that you will also fail at? Right. It's not so, about
0: the fire watch. Yeah, it's, it's, it's about, about your
1: willingness else. to do right. it and to, you know, to, you know, in the grand sense, you're protecting your sleeping brothers. And, I mean, I didn't have that feeling or knowledge yet. I just knew I need to do this so I don't get the shit beat out of me in some hazing incident. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: right. So tell me about when you learned that you were going to be deployed—
1: were you expecting it? No. Um, by the time we got the red letter, since I rejoined the since I joined the unit three two five in Brook Park, we had been told we were going to be deployed pretty much every drill weekend. We came off of like after you deploy your unit, unless you're like a hardcore in demand like active duty unit, you get like a year long cooldown period before you're ever deployed again. So. 325 had been, I got back a little under a year after they'd been back. So by the time I did my first year in the unit, we were up for deployment again. And then every weekend after that, it's like, hey, we're already starting to hear murmurs. Be ready. Start getting your shit packed up, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like talking to like my landlord at the time who luckily was a good friend. Like, hey, I might be going soon. And I'm telling the work, hey, I might be going soon. And it was just, it got to the point where it's just like, I don't know if you and I were having a conversation, dude, coming over, gonna bring Call of Duty and chocolate chip cookies. And you're just like, sweet, like both of these things. Dan never shows up. And then, like, later we run into each other awkwardly. It's like, dude, coming over this weekend, chocolate chip cookies, Call of Duty, just doesn't show up. So after a time, I'm just like, you disregard. You're just like, you're just saying mm-hmm. this crap. It's kind of like a, I looked at it like a scoutmaster trying to, like, it says, like, if you don't walk too far away from the tents, the snipe is gonna get you. So. I kinda just like at that point it was almost out of my mind. I was like, I'm probably going to do my full hitch and I'm never gonna deploy. And it was like it was one of those things where I wasn't like gung ho about, but at the same time, you know, I was like, Well, I would like to say, you know, I did, you know, do my when I did my time, I did hold the line. So there was that. And when it hit, it was it was really crazy because we were out in the field on one of the worst field operations I ever did. We were helping uh do uh Food service and like distribution stuff for this unit who was like embedded in a uh, kilo company in Moundsville. And so we drove a bunch of us down. So basically, just doing like a support operation because they were doing like orienteering and fire team exercises. Mm-hmm. It was that, it was early in the morning. I just like spent the night sleeping in a Humvee, which is just a stone-cold nightmare in and of itself, man. Oh, my God. But... Uh, I thought a Ford Ranger was bad. Like, the seatbelts go up into your side, but a humvee has got to suck. Yeah, it's like they, they intentionally made them uncomfortable, so you're on high alert. You can never get complacent. But uh we just woke up, and I told this kid, I'm like, hey, start those boilers going. Let's get the food run. You know, as soon as we get these guys their breakfast, you know, we can load up the gear, burn out of here. We're done. And... uh after that, we <laughs> we get everything going, and for whatever reason, the lieutenant colonel comes out, and he just showed up randomly. This thing, He's like, look, I wanted to come out and tell you, we just got our red letter from regimental, and we're going to be deployed to Afghanistan. And so that's when I was like, holy shit, this is real. Wow. <laughs> it was like January of, I think it was January of 2010. And I was like, well, or January, December. And I was like, well, there it is, going to war. So it was a bit of a shock. Because like I said, you know, after so many times of just being told the world's, you know, going to go in this direction, you know, it didn't happen. You just start
0: to dismiss it. I
1: I did. You know, every drill weekend I was like, yeah, right. You know, we're totally going to be, you know, upgraded to reconnaissance teams. We'll be participating in Phantom Fury like every Marine claims they did. (laughs) And... You know, that, that's that's going to be it. No. And I was just like, shut up. You know, I mean, we're not going to get it. And then, you know, hey, finally, you know, we got called up to the majors. And that was it. It was shocking.
0: And you alluded to this earlier when you got the news. You're like, OK, OK,
1: good. Yeah, good. I, I was. I was kind of like, you know, honestly, it was I wanted, you know, after the initial shock pass, I wanted it all to mean something, you know, because for a time, you know, I had, and I I am fortunate, I made a lot of f- friends in my unit, you know, we, I just actually f- came back from a brief hangover respite before I got here, grabbed some Barrio tacos with them, and, uh, you know, we, in that, like, even if I just had that, that's still pretty good, but even then, I, I did want it to know that, you know, like, I did, you know, do something that mattered in the context of my service, beyond just... At the very least, showing up to formation, having my uniforms correct, proper shave, attire, and doing what was ordered at all times. So, Helmand Province. Yes.
0: That's where you were deployed to. Taliban stronghold, also the center of the
1: opium trade, according to Wikipedia. Oh, it was, yeah. A lot of opium out there. A lot of opium out there. A lot of hashish, too. Great hashish. Like, oh, man. We got this truck, and this guy had, like... My buddy, uh, I won't use his name because he's currently with a uh, special unit right now. A little envious of him. But uh, he was just like, dude, get over here real quick. And I'm like, what? And he's like, just, just smell this. And I see it. And it's like, it's got to be at least half a kilo of hashish. And I smelled it. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> this smells heavenly. And he was like, yeah. And I'm like, in another life, I'd just be like, let's just pocket it. <laughs> but... Swore my oaths, not going to do drugs in the uniform. So we uh, took like it that out. Dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> I mean, hey, you know I mean? Out of uniform is what it is. But like while I was in it, no way. I raised my right hand, you know, swore my oaths before gods and men in our country. And I was just like, well, if I shit on that, I don't, I don't know what kind of human I can see myself as anymore. Or why anyone should ever take me seriously for that matter.
0: That's a good point. That's a good point. Uh, in a general sense, what was your mission? Our mission
1: was, and we all just got, well, to, to kind of start it off, you know, we got pulled up to Cali and we were the first ones to get a new brand because everyone had been going to a school in 29 Palms, the Mojave Viper School, that was specifically tailored to hardcore. Uh, desert warfare. However, Afghanistan isn't a desert. It's a very it's a unique country in many ways. It's mountainous, it has deciduous forest. I think deciduous is right. That's the one with pines. Or is that coniferous? I don't know. Coniferous is the pines that yield the cones. That's it. Yeah, I like coniferous forests, um, you know, river deltas, grasslands where we were in Helmand, it's like at first blush, you'd assume it's a desert, but the substrate is actually we jokingly refer to it as moon dust. It's kind of like baby powder. And it's funny as you'd step on it, you'd like sink just like a little bit. And it was because it was even finer than sand. And as I was, this is delightful. I've been you know kind of purging stuff in my house lately, trying to get rid of crap. And I opened up some of my deployment stuff, and I rolled out this prayer mat I bought there, covered in moon dust, and it just, just like poofed poof. up. And I was <laughs> just like, it's still with me. <laughs> So, yeah, but it's 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 very fine. and so it's it really is a different kind of warfare. So they created a training that was more tailored to navigating through the mountains, you know, working through, you know, desert steppe like environments. And again, I always refer to like where we were as more of a wasteland than a desert because the temperatures were erratic. We actually had precipitation a few times. Mm. And during the rainy season, it was like a goddamn monsoon. And that moon dust turned to like some of the most prolific and amazing mud I've ever seen. In I my can imagine life. it's like a paste. You would take a step. I remember stepping out. You know, they had us in these big cans, these prefab Connex boxes, basically. And, you know, we just had bunks in there. And like, you'd have like guys, like, gosh, how many guys did we have in that thing? I think we had 10, 12 of us in this thing. And it was like you'd be stepping out of bed and like stuff and all that is like right in your face. And it's always funny when I mentioned we had an air conditioning unit, and it wasn't so much to keep a temperature, it was so we could keep fresh air coming in and out, so you don't like just die of CO2 poisoning, because you're sealed in. There's no windows or Mm -hmm. anything like that. You strictly need the AC unit just to keep breathable air coming in, so it was kind of a wild card scenario. But yeah, I'd walk out of this thing during the rainy season, and my boot would like go down about two inches, it was insane. So I definitely have a respect for guys who talk about World War I trench warfare after that. Oh, my God. Mud you is imagine? no joke. I can't even fathom. Yeah. No. When you uh, – how did you sleep over there? When afforded the opportunity, I slept like a baby. Mm. It was funny because I had these uh, – I'm going to be politically correct here. We purchased these lovely, lovely blankets in Afghanistan. And um, you can find them at Halal marts. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Seriously, I, I'm in recovery mode, and that's the only thing right. that'll like get me right, whereas I won't be hungover. And then it was like Giant Eagle was like, this is $15. And I'm like, that's a lot of champagne. $15. Martini yeah. and Rossi. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, dude, no worries. And this OJ, I mean, seriously, I'm not a kind of sewer sort of OJ, but Simply Orange with Splash of Mango. <laughs>
0: That's the It's one. like you're
1: on a friggin' vacation. There you There's go. Go ahead, if you want to add some to yourself. Yes, indeed.
0: Mimosas. So we've had some sake. Yep. Christmas sale and blackout stuff. Now we're on to mimosas. Indeed. This conversation is about to get, uh, well, just refer to the first part of the uh, interview for the more, most interesting
1: parts. Well, you know. The most cohesive parts. I like to fancy my alcoholism to be more in line with Doc Holliday than, say, I don't know, Steve Bader's, you know, whereas I have, you know, a great background of theater, literature, foreign languages, and music to fall back on, so when I'm saying things, it's more along the lines of, and that's right, it was David Lynch, and that score was made by Angelo Balladamenti, instead <laughs> of just like, ah, oh, Footloose was awesome!
0: <laughs> right. I, uh... In reviewing some classified documents, oh, oh. i.e. I, I, creeping on your Facebook photos, Quite all right. I noticed that you had befriended many cats over in Afghanistan. Where did they come from?
1: Afghanistan Not was... Not only
0: befriended, but apparently took orders from. They had rank.
1: They did. All of our animals had rank. Um, dogs were NCOs. Cats were COs. And, uh... <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Um Afghanistan was a wasteland of neglected and lost animals. And uh uh there were a lot more cats than dogs because the cats could, you know, go unnoticed. They were, you know, by nature they're more stealthy, can avoid detection. We could care for them. We couldn't care for dogs, though. I mean the dogs are just of sense. like A high maintenance. High maintenance and they were very feral. And uh Dogs in the Islamic faith are, like, considered highly unclean to the point of bad, to the point of where dogs are only ever used as, like, it really, like, genuinely a work animal. Like, if you needed to hunt something or... And even then, like, game is mostly, like, goats. So it's, like, if you need to, like, hunt mountain goats, maybe you'd get a dog. I don't know if... They, perhaps there is some breed of dog in that country that could do that. Mm-hmm. If so, I'm not aware of it. But the cats were everywhere. Cats were considered good, lucky, etc Um... But uh, yeah, we had General Sasha. She was my favorite, and uh, one of her kittens, Lieutenant Natalia. That was the one I had the most. So she was a lot of fun.
0: How has deployment changed your life?
1: In a lot of ways, it uh, even before I went, it changed things a lot. I like, I <laughs> I was so fucking dumb. I got the red letter like I knew at some point in time I'm going to war and then like I hook up with you know I get a girlfriend and it was like not like you know we'd been seeing each other for a while but it was like no like boom brand new and I don't want to I would never say that that was a mistake but it was just kind of like I really when it came down to it you know it was clearly going to be unsustainable we'd only been together like a few months and, you know, I'm going off to fight in a goddamn war. And it's like, well, you know, I, I look at myself and I was like, is it irresponsible to get someone to like and love you, you know, fully knowing the consequences and, you know, what is required of where you are going? And that was like my first... Right. You There's know, so many implicit things that go along with that. Yeah. And my big fear with that was, it's just like, you know, we've only been together like maybe like three or four months You know, you don't need to, like, grieve for me if something happens to me, you know, when I'm over there. And I almost feel I was self... Like, I I blame myself. I was selfish and, like, you know, like, oh, yeah, relationship, sure, why not? But then it was, like, as things started happening, I'm like, this is a really bad idea because this could theoretically ruin this fine young lady's life if I'm fragged over there. But that was kind of, like, my first thing that changed when I really had to start... Not looking at, like, my own desires, but I had to, like, think of, like, other people's lives just in that. I was just like, she doesn't deserve to, like, carry around, like, the cross that is, you know, me had something happened or something like that. So you feel in a way it closed you off some? It did. It definitely closed me off. I mean, I really, I did keep people at arm's distance because I was like, "Eh," you know, I didn't want to do the whole uh, Rocky Erickson and the thirteenth floor elevators thing—you're gonna miss me when I'm gone. But it was—I was afraid. You know, you know, my family are—you know—they're good people. But like, you know, my grandfather and I are the only war fighters. So I mean, it's just like there's a bit of a gap in there. You know, right comprehension and understanding of what can go wrong in that. So I kind of like, you know, I, I did my best to be sensitive to their needs and the needs of everyone, but at the same time i kind of just felt like too i needed to throw up a couple walls just so it wouldn't be as traumatic had something gone wrong and with it throughout it it just like the whole thing you know changed my mentality about everything i mean every day you wake up you're an apex predator i mean whether you whether you think it or not and it, it that's no claim that I was, like, you know, the reincarnation of John Basilone or, you know, SEAL Team 6 or something. But every day you wake up, you have to be an apex predator. In the eyes of, like, the people I have to, like, you know, check for drugs or weapons, whatever, you know, they have to believe that I am, you know, the danger. I mean, <laughs> that sounds really, really corny and comic booky, but But you, you almost have to keep up that facade, and then you have to buy into it yourself. It's like, you know, I'm decked out in, like, roughly, you know, 50 pounds of battle rattle, you know, that can take direct hits from an AK, you know, back to that point, you just have to like wake up with that mentality of I'm the top of the, you know, top of the pops here in this country, these people, I dominate them to the man, I dominate them. And it's like, it's not even meant to be something that's, you know, racially so, or any manner of, like, PC sort of thing, you just, in a way, you just have to, like, psych yourself up to, like, get through those moments. And you have to cast that presence because in complacency lies your own doom. If you get complacent, people can sense it, people can see it. And there was one day I was weak, and luckily nothing happened, but it was, like, I lost ground in that moment, and I never forgot it, and I'd wish I had done something more, even to this day. But, you know, luckily, nothing bad happened, no lives lost. It was just basically me kind of like, you know, like, fuck this, whatever. But after that had passed, I realized then it's like, I need to just wake up every day and realize that, yeah, I I need to look it right in the eyes, I need to be able to face what's happening, and what's around with me. And these people, be they, you know, local national Afghanis, possible Taliban, whatever, need to view me as, you know, something fearsome. Is that easy to let go of? No, not at all. Not at all. I have a... As a result, I feel I've developed kind of... A, I don't want to say like a, a frat boy douchebag mentality, but it's definitely more of an alpha persona. I really... Since deployment, I was far more far more passive. I, I was just like more things. I was like, you know what, just let it lie, let it pass, let it lie, let this person have their moment, whatever. Now I've really more fallen into the category of no, 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 fuck you for X, Y, or Z. And, you know, it's sometimes, you know, it's been fine. It's just a matter of me like asserting myself. It's like, no, you cannot screw me in the following ways. Or, you know, sometimes it gets a little ugly and cat in the hat, that is that. So how has being deployed changed how you think about war. In that regard, I I think it's like, I truly believe that in any capacity a deployment changes a person because to be away from everything that's comfortable and that you care about is traumatic, but not like traumatic in the sense that it's, you know, life-shattering at every given moment. It's it's, it's like nothing else, you know, I mean, like, it's like, you know, one of those things that's like, it's always going to be crystallized in my mind, you know, my time over there, how it affected me, how it affected other people, you know, I mean, there's like people in my life who were like, you know, worried about me, you know, I didn't even find out, um, before I play like I said, I, you know, foolishly, you know, engaged in a relationship. And when I say foolishly, again, it, it wasn't like it, like it was a bad endeavor. But it's like, I kind of am mad at myself for like hurting another person. And like, pushing them into, you know, caring for me so much that, like, I knew the only way to, like, shield them from any possible harm of, you know, my destruction would be to break it off. Well, in that median, you know, um, this is way back in my time at OU. My first very serious girlfriend did not happen until college. Um, Lovely young lady. We had a great time together. Breakup was rough. It was really, really bad. And... It was one of those things where it's like it's uh, if you have certain incidents in your mind that are just like they're always there kind of like where something bad happened or like somewhere you perform poorly and you're like, ah, I shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have done it. And that's kind of how the breakup was. And uh, I, won't, I won't get too much of the nuances of because I don't want to insult her memory. But, uh, you know, we split up. She like disappeared. Like she withdrew from the university and like went off the grid. Like no one knew. Like it was very like. It was creepy to me because, like, my like the day she disappeared, like, her mom called my mom. Like, does Dan know where she is? Like, she's disappeared. I tried calling her room. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is terrible. So it was this pallor over my head for years. Then with the advent of social media, she found my ass and friended me. <laughs> so and it was like, you know, we, we reconnected. And it was one of the most cathartic moments of my life where she's just like, I feel terrible about how we ended things. You know, it's not, it's not like, you know, we were close to being engaged or anything like that, but like, I felt terrible, you know, at different points since then. And she just like, she said like, I'm sorry about it. And it was like, it was such a relief. Cause like I used to have like weird dreams about her and stuff like that. And it's like suddenly all of it was gone and it was like the, the most like, great release I could ever have. And, you know, we were just friendly as a result. And, um, you know, we talked about each other's lives. You know, she got married. It didn't work out. And she's actually had ovarian cancer and she made it through. And it was just a really, you know, horrifying and rough journey. And, you know, as a result, we bonded very closely. And, you know, she'd email me and stuff while I was on deployment and before I got there. And, then her cancer came back and it was one of those things where i was kind of like well i got through this once before i'll do it again um i'd been on roughly about a kind of like a 48 hour run i'd been you know driving around in these uh tactical vehicles matv's matv's i forget what they stand for but i was the only guy who was sober enough to like go out and get my tactical vehicle license so i was a priority there (laughs) I was one of the few I should say there were others who did it as well but uh, I came back and it was like I was just drained and uh, one of our guys had like and I give him credit he actually rigged up a satellite uh Not a satellite catcher, but like this gigantic antenna that could draw Wi-Fi and we could access the Internet. This thing was like 30 feet tall with like this crazy ass weird 1980s dish and all this other stuff, rigged it up, set it up so we could have Internet for like, I mean, at AOL, you know dial up speed, mind you, but it it was like truly weird science. It's, you know, Marines are always complimented because we get so little from the Navy. We're very innovative. This was one of those moments where I was like, God damn, this is why we get it. (laughs) (laughs) And I logged in and, you know, just like this was something like, you know, you're maybe the afforded the opportunity to do like, eh, you know, once a week, if that, you know, kind of just depends too, because it's like, you know, do I want to get some sleep I was really big on working out. Me and the other guys I was patrolling with, we'd kind of just drop our gear. We'd go like pump iron hard for like two or three hours, come back, get food, sleep for like eight hours, get ready, do it all over again. And uh, this time I was like, you know, I need to check some emails, see what the folks at home are doing and all that. And uh, I log in and it turned out she had died. And it was just like... It was one of those moments where it was, like, very powerful. Like, mind you, we weren't together. She was my ex-girlfriend. But, like, you know, we were still close as people. And it was a bizarre moment because I was, like, everything in me wanted to be able to go back and go to her funeral. And there's nothing I can do. You don't get, you know, any kind of leave for an ex-girlfriend, much less a girlfriend. It has to be, like, your wife or your mom, dad. And I just remember kind of, like, sitting there just kind of dazed in the moment and... My buddy, uh, Danell, he was a sergeant of the guard at the time, comes knocking on the door, opens up. I'm like, you know, just like down to like my basic camis and stuff like that. And he's like, hey, there's a suicide bomber in the ANA compound. We need you guys to hold the gate. Get all your guys, Get the, get on their gear. We're going to get a truck over here in like two minutes to drive you over there to defend that post. And then like I was like, okay. And then I just remember I took like 30 seconds to like, read this to like soak it in and drink in that moment and like to like just kind of like feel sorry for myself and then it was just like put it all back on snapped around in that chamber got back on the truck did it all over again for another you know eight hours while we waited for a suicide bomber to poke his head around the corner and it was things like that that I think affected me the most is like when I'd hear something about home and she's like you can't do anything like that happened. My aunt had a brain aneurysm. She almost died. Like my favorite aunt, we've I've you know been very close to her. you know, she's really like fostered my interest in like literature and reading. And there, there, you have this great impotence there there's nothing you can do. My parents hid it from me for weeks. and I'm actually very grateful that they did that because that was that happened right around the time that uh, my ex girlfriend died and I was like, had I gotten both of those, that would have probably affected me like out there in the
0: world. So well, that yeah, that was that was thoughtful. It's the there's a interesting juxtaposition between the alpha warrior persona that you yeah. need to project and then every everything that really matters
1: outside that realm is out of your hands. Oh, very much so. Very much so. And it's it like I said, it was just like in that moment, I was like, I can give myself a few seconds to feel sorry for myself, feel sorry that I can't do anything, to feel sorry that I wasn't there because, like, even at the end of the day, you know, again, we weren't together by any stretch of the imagination, but it was like that was still a, a good person I knew, someone who you know I knew well, and you had
0: a, a and I clearly meaningful yeah. connection, very very yeah. towards the end there, yeah, yeah. Um, you said. Strategic question. Go ahead. How much of a threat is the Taliban now, and is the world too focused on ISIS? The
1: Taliban is still a threat because they're a political entity. Um, they have actual, like, no kidding, offices in other countries like Qatar, the UAE, Um other uh, other countries that i you know can't recall at this moment but to me the taliban are a little more dangerous because just because of that they're, they they uh, they're a political faction they have a political ideology and they do have the war fighting angle as well and because they do things like you know push for you know money in these other countries and they get it you know i mean that that does almost make them a little more dangerous than isis because they are very much seen, kind of, at this current moment, something more of like a political faction and less of a, you know, insurgent group. Yeah, you hardly hear their name
0: anymore. Yeah, Every, everything is, everything is ISIS. I mean, to to a major fault in the yeah. media, not to editorialize. Oh yeah, but. yeah,
1: uh, Daesh is, uh, um. They get a lot of press because their tactics are, you know, quite severe. But again, it's... Like Saudi Arabians, right? Hmm? Hey, I don't want to get sued. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Daesh (laughs) is... uh, And I choose to use the name that they hate the most, which is... I understand. I I heard you say it, and I understand. But uh, Daesh is... uh, They have so much more against them now where to me I almost like I worry more about what the tal- what other groups are going to be capable of while they're kind of the supernova as they are starlight. So you think that the
0: Taliban has an opportunity to maybe gain some momentum or get things back while there's not a lot of attention on them?
1: Yes. I. Um, it's Hamed Karzai, I believe, is the president of Afghanistan or mm-hmm. prime minister, whatever it is. He's just, he's the warlord that we gave the keys to the kingdom it's he didn't have any credentials or anything I think enough of the right people liked him to the point where they're like this guy will just get the job done you know at the very least he can maintain and hold over you know the various tribes and factions that are present in Afghanistan and it's Afghanistan is problematic in itself due to its you know geography and everything you know it's not called the graveyard of empires for you know nothing but there's such diversity, like, ethnically, religiously. It's it's really, uh, it's it's not like Iraq. And, like, Iraq does have its problems as well. But, like, you have, uh, you know, Pashtun, uh, people of Pashtun ethnicity, uh, people who have Uzbeks, Tajiks. Um, oh, what's the other one? Darn it. And even some people from... uh, Are there Kurds in Afghanistan as well? There are no Kurds in Afghanistan. Um, The Hazara. That was the other one I was looking for. The Hazara. Hazara. Yeah. And, like, the Hazara themselves, they're, like, you know, almost, like, uh, Oriental Asiatic in in, uh, appearance. And that's because, like, the only person who's ever managed to conquer... And subjugate Afghanistan was uh, Genghis Khan, and thus the Mongols kind of worked their way in the gene pool, to put it politely, That's and uh, that result is still present in like the back countries. <laughs> but uh, I think with Karzai's position, is he was a guy who could kind of rein in everyone and maintain some semblance of order. Now, however, he wants to, like, treat with the Taliban, give them, like, spots in a parliament or something of that nature. And I, I rather find that rather worrisome because their uh, dogma is, well, frightful to say the least. But, again, it doesn't make the media's attention because it's not nearly as, uh, I guess, flashy and, you know, bleeds it leads as ISIS is, right. whereas, you know, you've... Got, like, live footage of executions, beheadings, mass graves. Uh, Daesh is very big about, you know, putting all of that stuff out there for the world to see. So,
0: You've expressed your disdain for militant vegans oh, and, yeah. cross- and CrossFit enthusiasts. Both, yes. I'm posing you an impossible hypothetical. You must choose. Go ahead. Would you rather be a vegan for a year or fully immerse yourself in CrossFit culture? Mm. High socks and everything.
1: I would definitely do vegan. Without a minute, yeah. I think the thing I dislike more about CrossFit people is they're under this belief because they've never been worked so hard in their life that they've unlocked the secret of physical betterment. They've they've found that workout thing that is not only like that it's, it just it breaks everything we know about, you know, strength building, endurance, everything. And I just I'm like it's bunk. All you're doing is you're going to boot camp for less than an hour and then you get to go home. And I'm like, fuck, I'm CrossFit certified. But at the end of the day, I called that getting pinned at the end of fucking boot camp because like I didn't get to go home. I mean, and I had to do your stupid little CrossFit thing for so like you did three, four hours of training
0: outside. and everything. Yeah,
1: I did. It was just it was very impressive because like, like drill, drill, drill. And I'm just like, dude, get off your high horse. You're yeah. just a personal trainer at best. And it's just what's one of those things. It's like. They try and bring the psychological – like the place I went to, and I'm not going to name it. They tried to bring the psychological aspect. It's like, dude, I was at a place where it's just like, oh, shit, you can't do enough pull-ups. Jump off the bar real quick. Punch. And it's like, now do some more. And it's like, yeah, okay. That's like – that's something that's serious. Real. Yeah. And it's not like I'm paying you 40, 50 bucks an hour to pretend you're a drill instructor. No, no, no. Kiss my butt. No, thank you. Whereas at least vegans, like, they're just like, yep, dietary, I mean, they're overly self-righteous about it. And I long for the day when the first scientist is able to, like, actually, like, record, like, screams of plants. I figure that'll be, like, the <laughs> the ultimate <laughs> moment. It. It's like, yeah. this is the sound of a strawberry being picked. And it sounds like an infant, like, screaming, right. like, with, like, you know, total baleful. The pent you know, vegan argument. Yes, exactly. And so that's why I'm just, like, with both, it's just, like, it kind of goes to my own life's like, you just, you can't live in absolutes. If you live in absolutes, you know, you're, you're going to close yourself off to so many things and you're going to force other people away. And if you just, and those are two mentalities that I feel are very absolutist. And with CrossFit, again, it's like, I've already done your shit. So it's like, it doesn't impress me. And it's like, you can do exactly what you're doing in different methods. And then, it's 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 the fact that you know you believe again you've you've cracked the Da Vinci code of, you know, muscle building and endurance and it's like it's I'm sorry that's just not true at all. Right. Right. It's you just you need to like step into danger for a second, but you don't want to do any more than that. That's all you know you want to do for an hour or two. You you've put it to the point where you can take your body to abject ruination without committing, because, you know, after those two hours, you dude, you get to go home, you can leave there immediately and go to Chipotle and pound like two Dos (laughs) Equis. Like, it doesn't fucking matter. And that's how it is. And but I like, and again, you know, veganism has that extreme absolutism tied to it. But at the same time, you know, they're in that world 24/7 and at the end of the day, I respect that a little more than someone who's just like you know, I'm gonna you know play pretensies. it'd be like you know if you were allowed to like civilians were allowed to jump on your fire calls or something like that and they're just like oh wow, fire you know taking a like super soaker to it or something like that they don't know the shit out of you
0: yeah and then yeah. when they start to feel a little bit of radiant heat in their face they're like okay that's
1: good. yeah, it's just like oh my god you know part of like that retaining wall fell on my shoulder you know. D- time out please time out yeah, for time the fire out. yeah and but at least like again like i would definitely do a year as a vegan because it, it's 365 24/7 and while i don't agree with that lifestyle i respect the fact that the vegans they stick to it and you know i mean if you if you stand by your word i again i, I don't agree but i i definitely respect the fact that they are able to you know live out that lifestyle all the time Uh, Music When did Rust Belt Sons form Was this like Your first band Band Um No not my first band Band Um Sorry Just trying to keep An eyeball on that So it's am on your Nice floor It's okay many Um This was definitely The first band Where I'd had As much control As I did Um Singing in a couple Different college bands I I kind of just like They were just like Hey You've got a bucket, and you can carry a tune in it, so you're the guy. Do these things. And it's like, okay, sure, whatever. I'm just happy to be here. And since at that point in college, I was very young, good-looking, and physically fit. I was like, I'm still going to get laid after this, so rock and roll. (laughs) But uh, with uh, Rust Belt Sons, it was like when Mike brought me into it, he was just like, look, this is a tune we've been working on. See if you can put lyrics to it. This is kind of the audition process we've given people. And I took it home, and it took me about two days to find lyrics that I really, really liked for the song they gave me. And uh, I put it all together, and um, you know, a little bit of that egotism mentioned before toot my own horn. I sang what I had, you know, we ran through it a couple times, whatever. Took a bathroom break, there was a vote cast while I was out the door, just like, thumbs up or down, unanimous vote, Dan's in, so. Um, With that, you know... That's a good feeling. It is, it is. Um, With that, it was really good to finally be able to, like, write songs and not basically shore up other people's songs. And I was more in college and high school, very much to the punk scene, so people had their... I don't know. The people I played with were far more passionate about their music and lyrics, so they were just like, "Again, you're just the, you were the music box that pushes what's on here out." So with Rust Belt Sons, this was my first opportunity, really, too, to play in the Cleveland scene in a long, long time.
0: Cool. What are your guys' future plans?
1: Um, you know, it's all kind of up in the air right now. Um, babies and bands, you know, babies and bands, bro. It's, uh... Yeah, I did that to my band, for sure. (laughs) Um, you know, when we were starting, Dylan's wife was pregnant. They had their first kid, and that limited his availability greatly. And then Mike had his first kid, Dylan had his second kid, so that's limited, you know, both of them to an extent, and... Uh, th- that's cast a bit of a power over things. But then it's like too, like, I'm personally looking to go in another direction in life. I'm looking at going back to active duty. And, you know, as such, yeah, I can't be in a band anymore if that's the case. Uh, so at this point, it's all very up in the air. You know, we've got another show coming up. I'm looking forward to that. But, you know, it's, it's kind of... You know, I'm looking at it as in the Joe Strummer sense, the future's unwritten. You know, if I end up going back active duty, if I'm cleared for being medically fit, then that's it. I'm going. I'm gone. But if it doesn't happen, yeah, I'll definitely
0: hang out and play some more shows. As a vocalist, I have the biggest challenge recording. Yeah. Oh yeah, um, guitar is easy for me. Oh yeah, I played guitar a long time before I started singing, but then I also find that singing in the natural variances within the human voice and maybe sometimes you don't feel so great I think that recording vocals is the hardest thing and I seldom enjoy it do you enjoy studio time?
1: no I. Um, it's the time where I. I think it's the most stressful because At our level of, you know, I mean, I shouldn't say at our level, at my level of music creation and inception, it's like, that's my money on the clock right now. And so in the days leading up to it, you know, usually 48 hours out, I'm not drinking. I'm not, you know, I'm very careful about, you know, you know, maintaining myself, like, you know, having a vitamin in the morning, avoiding colds, things of that nature. Because, you know, luckily, um... Our guy, uh, Conquistador Cole Martinez, was uh, super awesome, you know, very flexible. And if we had to cancel, as long as we could give him, like, a day or two's notice, that was good. But I've never met Cole Martinez, but I've heard a lot of uh, his projects. He's very good at what he does. Oh, he's exceptionally good. Very good. Highly recommend him. And, you know, he gave us, you know, a very fair hourly rate, you know, but my big thing was... With that pressure on there, for me as a vocalist, I just, like, I really had to do a lot of prep work. I felt like I needed to do a lot of prep work. Like, usually three days out, I wanted to sing all this stuff. And I had to have a good idea in mind. Like, our first session was very productive. We managed to get through in, I think, probably about four hours. And by the end of that, I was like, uh, You know, you just reach that end of your voice. Right. And, if you uh, can't cut a
0: whole album in four hours, it's n- nothing more is going to happen after that.
1: Yeah. Well, I, we, we did four hours and I got through five songs. So I was. It's solid. That's yeah, a good day. It was a very good day. Then the other time we did four hours and I only got through three songs. But those were like, I kind of mapped it out that way as those were the most vocally challenging songs where I'm hitting the absolute highs and lows of my register where I'm like, if I start with these songs and like. If I do all of these songs on the same day, like it just won't work. Right. And uh, so I had to like I, I had to figure out like in my mind how to spread load that. Whereas like a bass player, a drummer, you know, you've got to get a few takes of the right beat because it's all relatively universal. And that's not to besmirch, you know, uh, rhythm. In general, because it is an essential piece. But at the end of the day, you know, you've got verse, chorus, breakdown, and then it's copy paste, copy paste Emotion, after that. Emotion, right, right. Yeah, right. and
0: to a vocalist, yeah.
1: With a vocalist, it's like you know, uh, I really and part of it's the poet in me. I really enjoy writing in different styles of rhyme, different styles of verse. I really like trying out different meters of verse. Even I go that deep with it. And that was one of the hardest things, too, because then it's like I wrote songs that were complex vocally, but then like later on in life, I'm like, wow, these are kind of hard to sing sometimes. But, you know, when they hit, I I personally feel they hit well, but in the recording environment, I had to be very careful because like if I did like uh, we have the song uh, Sully Dancing." And it it like hits some of the absolute highs of my tenor register. Like I'm still very fortunate where I can hit the bottom and mids of tenor one. And on the really good days, I can get that full tenor one back. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's one of those things where it's just like it, it it's kind of like you know where the moon's at. You know, I'll get it sometimes and I won't. But I know if I do that in tandem with such and such other songs, I'll be fried within a couple hours. So. As a vocalist, I think like when you're paying for it out of pocket, you need to be very cognizant of what you're doing that day, what songs are going to be required of you, and you know, r- really, too, like how much money do you want to spend on this? So for me, it was like we had 11 tracks. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I can bang this out in three, possibly four sessions. And I did three, we did a fourth session, which was like, uh, Basically two hours where we got everything done, but he found areas, sent me the tracks, and he's like, "Hey, look, you know, listen to this. I think this kind of sounds weird. Do you want to go back and attack this?" Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. And uh, you know, again, excellent sound engineer. He really like, you know, did enough of his own work outside of what he and I were doing to be like, "Hey, you know, we can, can cover, cover this in a couple who's hours." Somebody just
0: gonna say, "Yeah, it's clock's it sounds running fine."
1: Yeah. Well, either A, it sounds fine, or is B, like, I don't know, maybe we could get something else, and wants to milk another hour out of you. Right. Whereas, you know, with Cole, he was very forthright in what we got, and then two, you know, he would just do off-the-books playbacks, like, hey, this is what we've got, if you're okay with this, if you want to change something here, and two, he would give me notes, which I personally liked when someone, you know, it's... Some people don't never want to criticize the front man, you know, in a sense we are divas, but you know, I like getting notes because if there's anything I want, it's to be able to put forth the best vocal product I can.
0: Right. And vocals are exhausting. And to your point, you're the band leader in front man. That's yep. exhausting too. We recorded the oh, yeah. uh, Quickening recorded last August. Yeah. And the weeks leading up. I was so focused on writing accompanying guitar parts, yeah, and talking to the engineer and getting everybody there on time and setting up the camera so we could record the video of us play all these other layers upon layers upon layers, and we did the day of live. We live tracked everything, okay, and then I overdubbed the second guitar parts, and it was good. I was very happy. I went back to cut vocals the next day as soon as I would open my mouth to sing, not to speak, to sing, just crackles. (sighs) Crackles. Exhaustion. Exhaustion. And you don't realize it, but it's everything else. So we had a great relationship with Bill Karecki from Mars Studios. He's mostly, uh, mostly disbanded now, but we, back back in the early 2000s and late 90s, we did a lot of Projects on two-inch tape with him. Okay, going, going, going back, and he did a lot of stuff for Victory Records and very solid studio. Um, Mushroom had recorded there exclusively for a long time, even after their deal with Universal. Um, it was his passion for a while, and now it's like we're one of four or five bands that he says, "Hey, come on back, guys." A yeah, year. yeah. Um, I went back the next day still couldn't eke anything out. It took about four or five days. I eventually brought the tracks back home to this studio to record vocals, to have enough time to recover. Not only, I think, is being the vocalist in a band the most challenging, but you throw in the responsibilities of being the band leader and the person who makes the phone calls and the person who... Sets everything up, and the person who has the most social contacts—it's exhausting.
1: I I concur, and as I said before, it's like I wouldn't say I was the front man if I didn't bring in the most people, and I think that's part of you know what makes singing's one thing, but being able to press people into coming to your band because, I mean, let's face it, you know. Uh, Indie music is, uh, people either love it or they don't, and... The, uh, the ultimate chore of the front man is to convince people to keep coming back and hearing stuff you've already heard before. And that comes in spacing your shows out. Going And for me, it's like, I know part of what my friends enjoy is if we go to different venues. Because like it's fun if you can be like, oh, wow, yeah, I've been to the Foundry. I've been to the Spitfire. I've been to Mahal's, Bevy and Bird Town, uh, Rock City, et cetera. And people will come see you if you go to different locations, you know, you offer up some different set items. But it is hard because if you go out there too much, you're just you get into a heavy, heavy overexposure and people just stopped coming because it's like we've heard the hits, man. And and that's it. And particularly in Cleveland, uh, Josh and I have had this discussion many of times. It's like we're a music town that really loves, you know, just to hear songs we already know. And I, I, I really, like, sometimes grapple with the fact, like, uh, we got on one of the best stages, it's one of the best hidden stages in Cleveland. And uh, it's not even, it's in North Olmstead. It's called the Sly Fox. It's right off of, uh, if you know where the Great Northern Mall is, it's not far from there. Um, you have a good eye for it. You'll probably spot it right off the rip. The stage is one of the quietest stages I've ever been on. Mm-hmm. They've got roughly a $15,000 sound booth going on. I looked at it. It's one of those crazy Behringer X32 Digitals with the iPod, uh, iPad mount in. Mm-hmm. This guy was manning this thing like it was the goddamn Millennium Falcon. <laughs> like he not only like as sound engineers go, he's was exemplary. But the stage itself, the way the speakers were set up, lights, cues, everything—I was up there singing, and for the first time, and you know, being with my band, I could perfectly hear at respectable levels everything that was going on, and myself perfectly. And I was—and it's—it's always been our running joke. It's almost unheard of. Yeah, dude, it, it's. It's this, you know, podunk, crappy bar that, you know, basically all they're looking for is cover bands. They're just like, yeah, you can do Billy Idol, right? Or some Rolling Stones <laughs> or Leonard Skynyrd, Freebird, right? And this stage is, it's phenomenal. Like I said, we, we have recordings of it still, and I go back and watch them, and it's out of the park. Like the sound is just, there's no other stage in the that serves our music scene like that one. And it, it blows my mind. And then, you know, the venues that, you know, we, you know, try and work in and get in, you know, they're still great. And I, you know, never, ever want to talk shit about any of them, but just like this place that, you know, we got in just on a wing and a pair, we're like, look, we can do half originals, half covers. You know, you good with that? Right. They're like, oh, yeah, sure, whatever. You'll be a good opener for the bigger cover band. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> but looking back at that, I was just like, This is phenomenal. Like, you know, if you guys accepted indie bands, but it was like... It was a full house that night, too. I brought in a lot of my own people. I think myself, personally, I had about 15, 20 show up that night. And, you know, our band had a good just... You know, we typically do. We have a good turnout. But uh, the people in the bar were like... They were into our music because it's it's approachable. It kind of sounds like something they've already heard before. Yeah. Which is maybe a good thing or a bad thing. I don't quite know yet. But... When we played some covers, like, you know, dude, we got some standards. Like Possum Kingdom, Paint It Black, Hey Joe. Everyone lit up. Like, the whole room got to their feet walking towards the stage. And it's yeah, just everybody like everybody loves what they love. Yeah, and I kind of feel like it, it's, it's not just... It's not a Cleveland phenomenon. Like, I've been to some other cities to see, you know, independent live music acts. And it's just like... It, I don't know if it's just because music is very, very accessible now, where we've gotten to the point where, like... Indie music is perhaps only desirable if you are truly passionate about the act that you're, you know, watching, listening to. Or, you know, we've just we, we've reached this point where all we want to hear is just like, you know, dude, play this or that by that other band. That's not you. So, I mean, it worries me a little bit, but, you know, I mean, hey, I still like playing out. So I'm going to keep playing out.
0: And so this live box, I, I've seen that before in. There's the places that you want to play as a band because they have a reputation, but you know the people there have nothing to prove, and there's a pretense there. Yeah. And my some of my favorite gigs over the years, you know, 15 years of playing here and there and just some, some bullshit dives. Some of my favorite places have been the bullshit dives where yeah. there's no pretense among the people there. Exactly. They just want to listen to your band and they appreciate it. Yep. And then this is, I'll say this without slamming the grog shop, because the grog shop is the grog shop. It's an institution, man. It's an institution. And my first gig at the grog shop was in 1995, when Kathy was still working the door. And my last gig was maybe a year ago. And it's changed. It has. Of course. Well, of course it has. Like, I don't say that as a. It's not a criticism. It's just a fact of life where you're gonna go there, and most nights the sound guy cares. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna come across nights where the guy,
1: where the guy just doesn't care. You know, he's there for his hundred bucks, and he's off like a prom dress and out like Crystal Pepsi. Right. I run into the same problem. And there's a lot of venues, and it's just like they just have, you know. And <laughs> it happened for our album release, and it was one of the like. What should have been one of the best shows ever, like, our opener brought a crowd. Like, it was fantastic. And we had told the venue, we were just going to do, you know, basically, opener was going to go on at 9, we go on at 10. I've noticed, personally, and I mean, feel free to jump in if you've noticed different, you start to lose people right past that 11 o'clock hour. Right. Like, I, I don't—it's I, not even, like—I don't even think it's an old people thing, because we have plenty of people who show up or who are mid-20-somethings, but there's, like, after 11 o'clock, people just start flagging. I, I think that yeah. that's,
0: you know, they're off to the next thing. Yeah. It, it's, it's a very non committal group, you know, um, especially if they were there to see the band that came before you. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of—we used to love playing second. Yeah. Because— you know, there'd be still some people there from the second, from the first band. There's yep. The people that you bring, and then there's the people who are coming for the third band, it's hanging great. out for the third
1: band. It's an ideal it's, spot.
0: I agree. It's three completely independent musical events. There is no opener, second band, and headliner. Yeah. In, in local gigs, there's very rarely. Back in the in the mid 2000s, we had some great gigs with like um when Jesty was in this is exploding there was another band minute of Arc um, the, I I think of a second half a bunch of bands that would second half bring oh, together just yeah. a ton of people oh yeah and you, you know one night we did um, I don't know if you remember these two bands it was it was quickening Yvette, and Leo and Leo I know one of my buddies was like man it's like the three bands that I would like want to see headlining are here with. That happened like that comment happened like once or twice, in yeah, hundreds of shows. This is my favorite part. Shoot. Word association. You will be given no further warning. Okay. Hacos. Delicious. Joke.
1: All right. What'd you say? All right. <laughs> Bust. Oh shit. Reptile. Delicious. Bust. Is that the repetition of the same word or is that like a response to the game? I'm sorry.
0: No, that's the that's the repetition of the same word. Oh
1: bust Omar Little.
0: <laughs> Sign. Stop. Plate.
1: Delicious. Road. Fast. Turkey. Sleepy time. Thanks, Dan. No prob.